Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and chavruta, Yerdena Asband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Eruvin, daf bet, page two. We are getting a new start. Um, before we do that, however, we want to thank everybody who joined us yesterday for our Siyum, or two days ago now. Um, for the Siyum, you can find the recording of that on the Talking Talmud Facebook page. Um, we want to thank Diana, who controlled the Zoom, and for all of the co-learners, all of our wonderful co-learners who participated and shared their reflections on Masachat Shabbat. We thank you so much. We couldn't have done it without you. Um, anything else you did? No, I'll just chime in. I just thought the Sam was lovely and wonderful, and uh, hearing everybody's words of Torah and reflections was just really amazing. And I know we said it yesterday, but just to say again that Anne and I can't be more grateful for this community um, and that people keep coming back every day and, you know, on to the next Masachat. All righty, here we go. Um, okay, now a few words of introduction because we've said, we've also because we know that a good number of people were not able to participate in the Seum and we want to make sure that everybody's on the same page, quite literally, going forward. Um, Masachet Erevin, in some ways, is a continuation of Masachet Shabbat, in that we're talking about carrying on Shabbat, right? And so that is a theme that we talked about, or a, a point that became a theme. A third of the Masachet Shabbat ends up being devoted to the Malacha of Hotza'a, to the Malacha of carrying. So here we're talking about, very specifically, how we circumvent the rules of not carrying on Shabbat. So we have to backtrack a little bit and understand exactly, you know, how did this come to be even before we get into the daf? And some of this will come up as we go through the learning, but we want to at least to have a common ground from which to work. Now, I said in the Siyum, and I'll say it again, we know that in terms of practical law, there are basically two two domains from the Torah. There is a private domain, Rishud HaYachid, and Rishud HaRabim, and the public domain. And how you define those is surely going, we're going to see that it's the room of many Dapim, but it also is pretty clearly defined, right? If you are in your house, your house has a roof, you have a private ownership, let's say, for example, you are in your private domain. If you are in a public domain and it's broad streets and, you know, zillions of people traverse the area every day and there's no roof and there's no enclosure of any kind, fairly straightforward to say that is a public domain. The question is what happens in all of the space, literally space, in between that, something that is an alleyway, so it's not such a broad street, something that has an enclosure, but many different families, let's say, many, many different private owners have some kind of um, responsibility or involvement in that kind of space. And Erevin comes to address that space. It is Drabanan, it is not Doraita, meaning it is a rabbinic, a rabbinic body of law, really pretty much the entirety of it. But carrying can be a violation, a Doraita violation of Shabbat. So what are we really talking about here? So here's where it gets interesting. And it's interesting for me, too, in terms of preparing for Masachet Erevin. I learn new things, not just new you know, words on the daf. That's obviously new. Maybe not obviously, but I'll tell you it's obviously new. But a different perspective about Erevin. And here's why I say that. I think for a lot of people, Erevin to begin with, the idea that there is a way to bring 
um, an area together to turn it into effectively to turn it into a private domain, which, you know, a, a non-private domain that is also not a Doraita public domain. It can now be treated as a private domain and we can carry. And we do this in all kinds of Jewish communities all over the world. But also if you go camping, you might establish a perimeter and set up for yourself an Eruv so that you can have, you know, more than just your tent as a place to carry. So what we do in that, right, the fact that we are creating for ourselves a place that gets us out of this malacha of Shabbat, of, of the prohibition against carrying, it feels like a loophole. It feels like a loophole because it is a loophole. But, but so I, I kind of always said like, well, I don't, why do I need to rely on a loophole? And there are segments of the Jewish the Jewish world that do not rely on this loophole. Chabad is known for it. They don't use Erevin. The Briskers are known for it. They don't use Erevin. But here's the kicker. If you recall, when we first started talking about Muksa, we and, and throughout our discussion of Muksa, actually, we talked about the fact that there was a time, and we read you the verses from the book of Nehemiah, the, there was a time that people were not taking Hilchot Shabbat seriously. They were not taking the observance of Shabbat seriously. And there came a time when Chazal, or rather Nehemiah, right, meaning it was prior to the time of the Gemara, prohibited all carrying of all handling, even, of anything on Shabbat, basically. You could have your little spoon, you could have your soup ladle, right, and a tiny knife. And that was it. And then slowly, slowly, things came back into the ability to be handled. So the idea of Erevin, being a loophole to allow you to carry when you otherwise wouldn't be carrying is a little bit of a misnomer because really what it does is it also, how do I say this correctly, that it would allow you to carry in, instead of handling nothing, right? As opposed to saying that you could just carry in one place and not carry it, not transfer it to another place. There was a time when to make people be more serious about Shabbat, there was a much, much more restrictive aspect to how people were going to handle anything on Shabbat. And so then when we say, okay, now we're going to facilitate um, all kinds of carrying on Shabbat in certain domains, right? Not in a public domain. Um, what happens is that Masachet Eruvin, instead of being a loophole to get you to do something that you couldn't do otherwise, is that really what it was doing was keeping you focused on keeping Shabbat, in, which is a more limiting focus, at, let's say, as opposed to, instead of saying, okay, no holds barred, you could go carry. That's not really what an Erev does. What an Erev really does is it says, okay, um, you used to be able to carry much more than we are now going to allow you, and now we're going to give you an Erev, and it's going to restrict your motions and your carrying practices for the sake of giving honor to Shabbat. So I think what's going to be really challenging about this Masachet and different um, is, well, first of all, we'll just let everyone know, this is actually considered to be one of the hardest Masachet to learn. And it's going to have a really different feel and pace um, than uh, Brachot did, you know, which had a lot of nice agadita and stories and things to reflect on. This is really going to be a lot of halacha. And Masachat Shabbat had sort of a combination of both. Um, but I think here what's interesting is, you know, some people, first of all, consider this Masachat to actually be a continuation of Masachat Shabbat. Maybe they were once all lumped together and then sort of split out later. But it's really primarily 
uh, Chazal delving into rabbinic law. You're not going to see a lot of Mishnahs or Gemara uh, that really talk about how do we know this principle? What's the source for this? What pasuk does it come from? Um, and, and I think it's really important to put, like you did, to put into context, you know, that I think some people could read this Masachet and sort of be cynical about it, that essentially it's just sort of one giant rabbinic loophole. And I think it's really important to emphasize that a lot of this was done. And we saw this theme in Masachet Shabbat also, this tension between wanting to make, you know, the Jews are defined by Shabbat and our observance of Shabbat, but doing it in a way that's also uh, tenable to people to be able to keep Shabbat. Um, and that we, you know, see that even throughout time, sometimes Shabbat was kept well, sometimes there was more difficulty in keeping Shabbat. If some of you remember, uh, you know, in Nehemiah, we read those psukim where it was clear people were not keeping Shabbat and were doing business on Shabbat. So I think that's really the exercise of what's going, of what's going on here. I want to just add that... Nowadays, if you are in an Orthodox community, the odds are really high that you have exposure to an Eruv. Your Dana and I both grew up in a community that at that time did not have Eruvin at all. It was Rabbi Salvatic's town, and they did not establish an Eruv except for, you know, here and there on a tiny block, but not a, there was no Boston wide Eruv, Brookline wide Eruv at that time. Um, it has become, I would say, some people like to say it's a women's issue. Right, because if you don't have Eruvin, then it becomes much harder to leave your house with small children or visiting a Shabbat where people, you know, share meals and things like that. Um, and I would say differently. I would say I think that the idea of having an Eruv that brings people together for their observance of Shabbat is a community issue. Um, and I don't know whether every community should have an Eruv because I do think that there's something to be said for remembering the right a level of observance. I know that there's at least one community I can think of offhand, maybe two, where they make a point, you know, one Shabbat a year, they take down the roof so that everybody should remember that this is a special halacha and not that there's no such thing as carrying, right? There is such a thing as a prohibition against carrying on Shabbat. And mostly we circumvent it because it really does enhance our observance of Shabbat. Um, I think that's an excellent point. And that will segue well into, I want to just go over a couple of terms. Uh, Anne and I are going to introduce a new segment to the podcast. I know we have a who's who and what's what, but particularly with a Reuven, uh, we're also going to have sort of a term or terminology section where we may go over some vocabulary or new terms. Um, so one thing I want to start with is sort of what does the word Eruv mean uh, or Eruvin? Um, and it probably means something like mixing together. Some commentators say that it means the mixing together of a permissible and the non-permissible. But I can't think of that word without thinking about Kol Yisrael Arabin Zelazeh. Those of you who tuned into the Hadron CM, I spoke about this, right? The idea that a, you know, a ravine that we are dependent on each other, that we have to rely on each other. And Anne, as you said before, making of an Arab is essentially a way of creating larger communities. Um, and so we'll see, you know, part of what that was, was that people would live a certain way where their courtyards would touch upon each other. And essentially by establishing an Arab, um, they could um, you know, increase the size of their Rishut Hayafid, right? So that was a way of making it 
more inclusive. Um, the, uh, you know, another type of error, again, I'll go through the specific terms in a second, had to do with restriction around traveling. You can only travel a certain amount on Shabbat. So, you know, by creating an Arab around that, you actually could travel farther. And again, I think that sort of broadens what our sense of community is or the number of people that somebody could interact with on a typical Shabbat. So whenever we think of Arab, I think having that, you know, very famous phrase of really needs to be there. Um, so I just want to go through quickly what type, there's really basically three types of Arabs. Um, one has a subcategory. So the first one is an Arab Chatserot, uh, which essentially was that people basically had their homes and then they had these courtyards outside of their homes. Um, and making an Arab Chatserot, which essentially was a way of symbolically putting up partitions. And again, I use the word symbolically one of the big questions about the Arab is by using some of these partitions, whether it's a crossbeam, uh, whether it was a, a pole of some sort, and we'll talk about all of this much more in detail, is it really considered a full wall? Is it a, a, you know, a symbolic wall? Um, but the idea is then you joined your courtyards together and people could carry freely between houses and between courtyards because you basically said the whole thing was a reshut hayachid. So that's an Arab chatserot. Uh, a subcategory of that, and this is actually where our Mishnah begins, uh, which we'll get to in a few minutes, is the Shituf uh, Mavot. So we have a word called a Mavoy, which is an alleyway. Um, and essentially what this would be is you would have your Rashud HaRabim, right, your public, you know, thoroughfare. And then off of it would sort of be like a, uh, you know, a little side street. And it wasn't really privately owned. It wasn't a Rashud HaYachid. Right, it would fall under what the rabbinic category would be of a carmelite, um, and and then off of that mavoy, off of that alleyway, would be different houses, um, and uh, you know, so that would be the shituf mavoy was a way of combining that area together so that the people surrounding the alleyway uh, could carry, uh, you know, back and forth from each other. So that's the. If first we wanted, category. I just want if we wanted to put this into modern terminology. And again, it's going to depend entirely where you live. But if you live in an apartment building or if you live in an apartment complex, you know, or a development where even if people have individual homes, but there's a whole, you know, you enter into a development, um, that's the kind of thing where this kind of mavoy might get a modern identity. Right. Or there's different types of mavoys, some that are, you know, sort of have houses on two sides or one on, on three sides and only one opening out to the street. But like for like a cul-de-sac would also be like another example of that. Um, then we have the third, the second category, which is an Arab Tehumim. So this has to do with the Tehum of Shabbos, which we did talk about in Masachat Shabbat, which is that a person is only allowed to carry 2,000 amot outside of the city limit. Um, and that essentially by placing food at that boundary and sort of making another residence for yourself because you left food there, uh, you can extend that to whom by another 2,000 amot. So really you would be allowed to walk in total 4,000 amot. Um, and then the last category is an Eric Tabshilin, which I think many people are familiar with, which has to do with if Shabbat, let's say you have a Chag, you have a Yom Tov, and the Arab Shabbat is on Yom Tov, and therefore you need to cook on Yom Tov for Shabbat, because normally when we say you cook on Yom Tov, um, you only cook what you need at that moment, at that time. It's not like you can cook, you know, for those of us living in America, when we have a two-day Chag, you can't, not really supposed to cook the first day of Chag for the second day of Chag. 
Um, so if the, one of the days of Chag turns out to be Arab Shabbat, we need to do sort of our food preparation beforehand. And, and so we make an Arab Tavshilin before Chag begins. Um, and that's called, you know, that gets dealt with um, in Masachat Beitza, which has to do with all the halachot of Yom Tov. And that's actually not even going to be dealt with um, in this Masachat, but just I'm sure people have heard uh, that term. So that's sort of my little introduction here. Um, and anything else you want to add before we actually start with the first Mishnah? I want to just, I, I just want to refresh everybody's memory about what is like, I would call them three and a half different Rishuyo, different domains, right? We have, I've said it before, and we're giving, I don't want to define them beyond just remembering what these terms are. Um, there's a Rashut Harabim, that's the public domain. Rabim meaning many, and many people will go through a public domain. There's the Rashut HaYachid, the individual's domain, which we'll call a private domain. And that doesn't need, mean literally one person, right? It just means a private ownership or whatever. And then the in-between status, um, again, with caveats that will say, you know, some things that are more like a Rashut HaYachid or more like a Rashut HaRabim will end up in those categories. But the in-between thing is called a Karmalit. Now, the last one I said is a Makom Pator. A Makom Pator is not really a domain. What happens is that if you have a Rashut HaRabim and you have within it a Rashut HaYachid, how can you do that, you might ask? And the answer is that a Rashut HaYachid has a specific measurement. So if you have something that is indeed that specific measurement, Arabet Fakhim, four by four tefach is a hand's breadth, right? So then you can have, let's say you had a shed, a small shed or even less, right? A small box in the public domain, it might actually count as a Rashut HaYachid. If you have something that's smaller than that, it's called a Makom meaning it's an exempt place, an exempt domain, whatever. And that means that even though it comes near to being its own domain within the other domain, it doesn't It doesn't get there. So that you would say it's a makom There's halachas that we'll come to. What what applies to a makom pator and where, where is it relevant? But just the idea is that there is the possibility of something, of having something that doesn't quite cut it as a rishut yachid within a larger either Carmelite or, or Rashid Harabim. Right. I think, and I think it's also important to know that the Carmelite status is rabbinic. That yes, is not, yes, yes. So That's like, exactly what you said at the beginning. That's the whole in-between right. thing. That's what we're right. doing here. Right. I and think that's a really important, just, just to keep that in mind. Okay. So without let's Carmelite begin. You cannot make an Eruv. Exactly. Right? Harabim does not get an Eruv. That's why if you, if anybody spent time in, oh, I don't know, Manhattan, Right then, there's there's discussions over can you set up an eruv in Midtown Manhattan at all, and there are right, different answers. Exactly. Okay, right, exactly. I think that's a very important point. All right, let's begin with the Mishnah. So here we're talking about a mavoy, okay, an alleyway that basically most of the commentators say in this particular Mishnah is enclosed on three sides, all right, with courtyards opening up on each side. So again, I would picture in your head a cul-de-sac. Oh, sorry. One thing that we also should have mentioned is um, Eruvin is very visual. And we really recommend that uh, we will be recommending some sources um, or some books or drawings. If there's a listener out there who wants to sort of be our resident artist, for a ravine, let us know. Um, but it really may be helpful while you learn some of this to actually sketch out uh, some of these uh, 
you know, what they're, what they're describing because it's essentially using words to describe something that's visual. So the motherly here that we're talking about is enclosed on three sides, right? On each of those sides are basically courtyards, right? Think of it as like a front lawn or something like that. And the fourth side is basically opened up to the Rashut uh, Rabbin. So this is, I basically picture this as a, uh, as a cul-de-sac, okay? Um, I think so the, the one, the, I think the one important distinction, let's say, between the bait, I don't know, the average cul-de-sac in suburban America, my parents live in a cul-de-sac, um, is that these had some kind of, I don't know, wall, fence, something uniting the front or the sides or whatever of each of these buildings, as opposed to just the lawn going on to become another lawn. Correct. Um, yes. So I that there's that a something unified, right. something unified the space as opposed to it just being like a neighborhood. Right. It would be like there would be a back wall around those three sides or something like that. Right. So you're not, so basically, according to rabbinic law, you could not carry in this area that's the Mavoy. Um, and so the way that you could carry it is that if there is a uh, cross beam, uh, put over it, right? A crossbeam in Hebrew would be a Korah. Um, so if it's, if it's placed over horizontally over the entryway of the alleyway of this Mavoy, um, you would be allowed to, uh, then you could carry. This would basically make the sheets of Mavoy. This would join all the Chatzay road with the Mavoy and you would be allowed to carry. But the question is, how high does this crossbeam have to be? Right. And so we're saying if it's higher than if it's higher than 20 amot, you have to bring it down and it needs to be 20 amot or less. Right. Rabbi Huda says you don't need to do that. And just having the cross beam is all that you need. It's not the height that's important. Um, and then it goes on. It says, and if that entrance to the Mavoy is wider then ten amot imat, you need to make it smaller. V'im yeshlo tzurat ha-petach, afalpishu rachav me'eser amot, ein sarichun at. But there's an interesting qualification here. If that entrance has, a, a, you know, looks like a doorway, in other words. So in other words, it has two posts on the side, okay? And the post we'll see later, it's called, a post is called a lechi, um, and has that cross beam, that korah on top of it. Um, it looks like a doorpost. Everybody knows what a doorpost looks like, okay? If it has a doorpost, something that's very clear marking what the entrance to the Mavoy is, then it is allowed to actually be wider than the tent Tzvachim, and you don't need to actually uh, make it smaller so that it hits that tent Tzvachim mark. So that is our first Mishnah, and I think you're going to continue with the Gemara a little bit. I'm going to continue with the Gemara a little bit. Tanan Hatam, and of course, you know, in true Gemara fashion, and this is not unique to Masachari Ruvin at all, it's going to jump in with a comparison to halacha that we know from elsewhere. And some of you, I mean, it's it's a subsequent masachet. It's not from Brachot or Shabbat, but you may know it anyway. Tanan hatam, sukkah, sukkah, shehi gavoa psula. We know from elsewhere, namely in masachet sukkah, that a sukkah that is taller than 20 amot high is pasul. It is, um, it is not fit to be a sukkah. You can't use it. For on Sukkot to be Yotzei your mitzvah of Sukkah, Rabbi Yehuda Machshir and Rabbi Yehuda says you can. So what's the difference? What's the difference between the Sukkah and the Mavoy here, where you are able to have that you know beam be higher than twenty amot? And the Gemara answers 
The difference is that the mitzvah of sukkah is doraita, and therefore, if it's too high, then you no longer have yourself a sukkah, lahalacha, for a, for a doraita kind of, from a Torah perspective. But if you have a bavoy that's that far, that, that is that high, it's a cross beam, you're allowed to have that cross beam be that high because we are, you're, you're basically fixing, right, Takante, the decree is going to be in, in the context of a dorabanan, a rabbinic precept. Right? So that the moment you have the Durabanan, then you can you can mess with it a little bit more. Meaning then the rabbis could come and say, all right, you have a phenomenon of a beam here, and that is going to rectify your your alleyway into something that can become a private domain. Um, and you can do that, whereas you can't really do that with a sukkah. And then the Gemara suggests an alternate expo- explanation, namely Doraita Nami Tane Takanta. Maybe you could say no, but even for the for the for the Doraita principle, you could still say that you can modify it, right? Ella Sukkah de Nefishin Mile Pasik Vatani Psula Mavoy Delo Nefishin Mile Tane Takanta. Maybe it's not a rabbinic. Maybe the divide between these two things, the Sukkah and the Mavoy and the alleyway, is not about um, Doraita and Rabbanan, but rather it's a matter of um, it, where you're talking about the 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 issues there being being many, right? How many different qualifications do you have for sukkah to be okay? So then, yeah, so then we're going to be concerned about height the same way we're going to be concerned about the thickness of the walls and the height of the walls and the width of the walls and how many walls do you have when we get to Masachat Sukkah? It's a short masacha, but there's plenty of detail in there to figure out exactly what makes a kosher sukkah. Where you're talking about an alleyway, to make it not be an alleyway anymore and to have it be a private domain, it's a pretty straightforward kind of thing to do. Put up your put up your beam, and I mean, obviously, it's more complicated than that. But but on this one condition, that's really all you have to worry about, and you're good to go. So it's a it's a different kind of um, thinking about the issue as you know, again, not perhaps the rationale between why you can't have 20 amot for your sukkah is not because of a doraita dorabanan divide, but because sukkot get defined very specifically in every single aspect. And here we have a lot more leeway. Okay. Um, So, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting to see, first of all, that comparison with sukkah. Like, we're already starting with a new topic, and right away we sort of go to, uh, you know, what else is it comparable to? And, you know, this discussion on the DAP of sort of, again, the same way that we did with um, uh, Shabbat, where we sort of always went back to the Mishkan, uh, we sort of see that here again. What's fascinating to me about it is I know that we kept saying before that really Arab is all rabbinic in origin. Um, but it's interesting to want to sort of find a model of what a entryway looks like based on our understanding of the Migdash versus the Mishkan and the terminology and whether or not it's interchangeable with each other. So, I, you know, I think there is a reason uh, that this takes place on the first uh, daf of a Ruven. I think in a way this is uh, Chazal sort of establishing like, yes, this may be a rabbinic uh, set of halachot about Shabbat, but always remember where Shabbat goes back to. And and also, 
take it seriously, right? The same way that uh, I would say like this. There are several different areas of halacha that demand architectural knowledge, architectural savvy, right? The first and foremost is the Beit HaMikdash or the Mishkan that led into the Beit HaMikdash, right? And so then from there, okay, also we've got a sukkah. That, that is an architectural, it, it has an architectural design. It, it demands our attention in this way. And lo and behold, Erevin is in that mix. So treat it with the same seriousness that you would treat the Beit HaMikdash in terms of determining space. Yerdana, once upon a time, you talked about Shabbat and the Kedusha of the holiness of time in the context of Shabbat. I think, and, and how there's also an element there that is the holiness, because we were talking all about carrying, right? So the holiness of space. And certainly that is true for the Beit HaMikdash, you know, in, as being the place where Hashem Shechina comes to dwell. But when we're talking now about what does it mean to reestablish space, you know, space that is more public into space that is more private and vice versa, I think that we should also keep in mind that part of what is going on here is um, we are, I would say we're changing the identity of this space in a very Jewish way. So I can't say that it's got the sanctity of the Beit HaMikdash, but it's still got our holy enterprise in terms of applying halacha to to what is otherwise just an alleyway. Yeah, I think that's a great point. So with that, we'll conclude. That's our DAF for the day. First DAF of A. Rubin. Uh, rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbanit Michelle Farber uh, for hosting us on the Hadron website and also having us participate in the Hadron Sam. Um, let us know what you think about this DAF and your feelings and thoughts about starting a new Masechet on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.